Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Welcome back to The Whole View, episode 417, whereby Stacy and you get to be educated on K2. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of those, um, I can't say that I'm disappointed that we're talking about it shows, although I didn't specifically ask the question. I learned about K2 like way back in the day, probably like Liz Wolf. Um, when she wrote her like book, like eat the yolk type, yes, yeah, yes, for the very first time, and I was like, "What? What is this?" Um, and really haven't learned much since. So <laughs> I'm excited. We will fix that today. Yes, I'm excited. We're going to dive into it, especially because I have a background as being a vegetarian. And this is one of those vitamins that comes up as being um, something that's difficult to get, and so I asked you in advance. I'm like, I'm going to need you to cover the science on that. Mm-hmm. Um, before we jump in, though, I do want to thank our returning sponsor, Just Thrive, who you and I both have used for years mm-hmm. as our probiotic, and we swear by, and I can't encourage everyone enough to give it a try. It's the only one that's ever like made a difference that I can feel. Um, but today they're actually sponsoring with their K2 through 7 supplement. Um, and I don't even know what that means, but I'm sure you're going to tell us. But here's the thing is I'm I've been taking this vitamin for months, despite the fact that I'm (laughs) not even quite clear on the science, but I'm like, yes, this is something that while in quarantine and concerned with optimizing my health, I will add while I'm on the Just Drive (laughs) site um, into my cart. So um, if it's something you want to grab as well, you can get 15% off with the code THEWHOLEVIEW, the same way that you can with probiotics. Anything on Just Thrive site, you can throw in there with that code. And Sarah, I'll tell you why. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I really feel like we're we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna go all the way back to basics with with vitamin K here because I think that you know we've had a lot of shows that have been dedicated to understanding a specific nutrient. And this is something that I'm really passionate about. Like I'm, I really think that the, the number one criteria for choosing foods that would address public health challenges, if we just adopted the number one criteria of how do I choose foods to meet my body's nutritional needs, right? If we just did that, we could fix a, a, not everything, right? But a a vast majority of the chronic illnesses that are sort of plaguing Western cultures. And that starts with really understanding like, okay, so what does my body need in how much and why? What does it do? And I think that where we've started in this sort of conversation in terms of focusing in on specific nutrients are like the heavy hitters, right? So we've talked about vitamin D. We're actually going to be referencing vitamin D a fair bit in this show. Um, we've talked about some specific minerals. I feel like vitamin K for how amazing it is and how many different things it does in the human body does not get enough airtime. I feel like it is a very underappreciated nutrient. And as we'll get into, 
we're going to fix that today. Uh, everyone is going to end listening to this podcast with a deep love and affection for vitamin K and probably a uh, passion for going to justthrivehealth.com slash the whole view and putting some K27 into their cart. Um, before we dig into the, the listener questions, we do have some fun comments to read um, that were in response to the very first bonus audio content posted onto Patreon. Bah, bah, bah. For those of you that don't listen to the end of the show, you don't even know this exists. They're like, wait, <laughs> there's a Patreon? Um, so to, to quickly recap uh, for our listeners who might not know, uh, this is a newly launched uh, way that you can support us. And uh, what we're doing to thank our Patreon family is posting uh, a bonus audio once a month that is our... Uh, it's sort of like behind-the-scenes thoughts on each episode. So we record these, um, this bonus content when we record, and it gets posted for our Patreon family only. And it's um, pretty uncensored, I would, I would venture to say. It's uh, definitely not rated G like the normal podcast. So if you're listening to bonus content and you have little kids, you may want to do it when they're napping. And I would say it's also uncensored from the perspective of uh, you get a real look at both of our opinions without a veil of professionalism. No, I'm kidding. Um, but we are we are truly ourselves there and talk about each show um, for a small amount of time and clump it together into one monthly bonus for you. So um, if you haven't yet checked it out, you can go listen to the one from last month and then we'll have another one for our patreon family again later this month can i tell you what some of our uh patreon supporters said about our first bonus content uh yes please kelby wrote first episode is fire emoji exclamation point love you ladies does uh, that mean it's hot first episode <laughs> is on fire yeah. first first episode is i'm like i'm interpreting that is it's pretty great yes fire emoji I, is a good thing uh, i forgot it. that you are culturally aged about twice your age but yes <laughs> fire emoji is good <laughs> uh and jan wrote i just finished listening to the content and i felt very reassured just to hear you all talking about your philosophy of nutrition it was a nice break from the science talk don't get me wrong, I love your scientific explanations, but it's often over my head and I struggle to wrap my brain around it. It was nice to get a glimpse into your hearts and minds. Thanks for being two of the lone voices of reason out there. I've been so discouraged through this pandemic to hear many of my former functional medicine heroes give into the conspiracy theories, and I've seen even more of them fall down the dogmatic diet hole, particularly carnivore and keto. So I feel a sense of calmness and much less anxiety when I listen to you two discuss life in an intelligent and rational manner. Thank you for all you do, and stay strong. XOXO. I got goosebumps. Thanks, Jan. Honestly, intelligent and rational is something I truly non-sarcastically do value. Like I'm, I, I really am a logical, rational person in almost everything that I try to approach it that way. So I appreciate that it comes across when we are lifting the covers a bit, so to speak. Um, 
well, awesome. If you haven't yet checked out Patreon, like I said, you can go listen to our first episode, so to speak. Um, and then we'll have... Is it an episode? I don't know. It's a bonus. Because it's not really an episode format. It's a bonus bonus audio content. We need to think of a name for it. It's something fun to listen to, number one. And then we'll have number (laughs) two (laughs) later for you this month. Um, What we do is we record after each episode just to kind of like give a little breakdown. So as soon as we've got four pulled together for you, we will post them up. But in the meantime, I am super jazzed to learn the science on K2. Um, and then I guess we'll talk about, like, give it to me real um, <laughs> later. Um, well, we actually had the the impetus for this show. Um, I mean, it's been one of those um, things that I think I've seen sort of buzzing around uh, the internet. But we had a question from Mariel come in that was, when I saw this come in, I was like, oh, this is like definitely something that we need to to figure out how to to fit in relatively soon because I think um, again it's just it's so important to really understand um, r- the basics of what nutrients do for us but also th- it gets very complex when you start looking at synergy with other nutrients. So Mariel wrote, I've seen more brands starting to push vitamin K2 supplements as essential to take, especially if one is taking vitamin D. I have a policy of avoiding supplements where possible unless they are whole food supplements or I have a medical reason for doing so. So I'm not sure what to make of company claims. I've been scared into buying emu oil since I don't think the organic liver capsules I take are going to give me enough daily K2 and I don't plan on eating 100 grams of liver or natto a day, but it's pricey and I'm not sure if I'm wasting my money help. Thanks. I I just had one of those like whoosh noises as we were listening. Um, I don't know what organic liver capsules are or emu oil. And I'm feeling like you're going to need to educate me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I can, I can say that I share a very similar philosophy to Mariel in the sense that um, I really believe that first and foremost, we should be attempting to to meet our nutritional needs from from diet, and that supplements need to be taken with a reason, right? They're they're. I think we have, and I'm going to speak broadly, society as a whole. Now, I think we have this tendency to um, give ourselves permission to not make the healthiest choices by relying on a multivitamin to fill in the gaps. And I think it's really important to not let a supplement be an excuse to not do the hard work of making healthy choices. Um, But at the same time, I think even when we're making all of the healthiest choices, there's a time and a place for supplements. And so I think supplements need to be taken uh, intentionally. Like it really needs to be, I mean, obviously everyone's take, I mean, you have to think about it when you're swallowing a pill, it's intentional, but I mean, um, it needs to be done with a plan, right? So there needs to be a, I need this because I've got this test result, or I need this because, um, I, I have this plan, right? There's this, it's something that is really specific to us and our health. Um, but Mariel is right in that there is some really important interplay between vitamin D and K2 and some growing science showing us that there is a, a very compelling reason 
to take these supplements together. So first I want to remind everyone that we've already done an episode um, that really went into the details of vitamin D and what it does in the body and uh, what our blood levels should be and uh, how to test and, and supplement accordingly. So I'm going to dive into the science on vitamin K with uh, sort of building on that basis. So we're going to start this with the uh, assumption that that uh, everyone's sort of on the same page, that vitamin D is really important and that um, it's really important to get our vitamin D levels tested and supplement accordingly so that our vitamin D can be in a functional range, which is about 50 to 70 nanograms per milliliter in the blood. So we're going to start with that, that vitamin D is really good. We like it. So now what does vitamin K do? Um, so vitamin K is another fat-soluble vitamin, right? The fat-soluble vitamins are A, D, E, and K. Um, it actually got the, the letter K, the very first rule of vitamin K that was discovered was in um, blood clot formation. And the K actually comes from the German word for coagulation, which is coagulation, but spelled with a K, um, pro and probably pronounced with a German accent. Um, so, so that is where that K comes from. It's, it's kind of a neat, most vitamins were just given a letter because they were, um, the given letters in order of discovery, but vitamin K gets, uh, the, the letter K for a different reason. There are basically two main forms, K1 and K2. There is a, a K3, which is a, a human made synthetic K, um, that I'm, going to mention here and then not talk about again at all for the rest of this podcast. Um, K1 is the dominant form that we get from food. Um, it is the, the dominant form in, in vegetables, um, and it is the what makes up most of the vitamin K that we're getting from our diet. K2, um, there's actually 13 different um, what are called iso isoforms or vitamins of K2. Um, so K2 actually has this like branch of um, carbon, little carbon units. And how long that branch is um, determines which, which vitamin K it is. So, um, or which vitamin K2 it is. So the chemical name for K1 is phyloquinone. And the chemical name for K2 is menaquinone. Um, menaquinone is shortened as MK, and then it gets a number at the end. So the number at the end is the number of these little five carbon units that it has on this chain. So uh, we'll talk uh, in more detail about the form of vitamin K2 that's in the Just Thrive probiotic, which is MK7, or sometimes called K27. So it is the seven there's seven carbon units on this side chain of menaquinone. So it's that's the chemical structure that gives it the little seven at the end. And we're going to come back to that. Like stick, stick a pin in that. There's multiple different forms of vitamin K2 that is going to become relevant. Um, but let's talk about um, let's talk about where we're getting vitamin K naturally from the diet. Let's start there. So Compared to other fat-soluble vitamins, vitamin K is not stored very readily in the body. Um, we store very, very little of it. Um, you know, vitamin D, we store a ton. Vitamin A, we store a ton. And it would take months to go through, to use up those stores. Um, vitamin K is 
not like that. We have some biochemical pathways um, that are specifically for recycling vitamin K, but compared to other fat-soluble vitamins, it's the stores can be depleted quite rapidly without regular dietary intake. So in that regard, um, vitamin K is almost more similar to a water-soluble vitamin uh, in the sense that we really need to be continually consuming it in order to have enough of it. Um, so in that, e even though it's fat-soluble, in that way, it acts a little bit more like a water-soluble vitamin. Um, so as I mentioned, K1, um, it, K1 is actually related to chlorophyll uh, in green leafy things. Um, and so plants that have chlorophyll, like if we're eating the part of the plant that has chlorophyll, um, so generally the, any part that is that grows above ground is going to have chlorophyll, um, then you're getting some K1. But our best sources, of course, are leaves, especially dark, leafy, green things. So kale would have a huge amount of K1, um, like 472 micrograms per cup. Um, like parsley is crazy high. Um, so those are like some of our top food sources of K1. And actually, if you just look at K1 and you look at the adequate intake level of vitamin K, you go, wow, like it's super easy to get vitamin K. So that kale having 472 micrograms per cup, um, the adequate intake level for men is 120 micrograms per day. And for women, it's 90 micrograms per day. And so there's this, um, on the surface, it looks like vitamin K is very easy to get from diet. You just need to have couple of bites of something green at some point during the day. However, there's two things happening here. Um, one is absorption. Um, and the other is the adequate intake may be set way too low. Um, so an adequate intake level is a little bit different than a recommended daily value. Um, and it's basically, um, the difference is there's less data to draw upon. And so when there's less data, um, they set uh, an adequate intake. When there's more data, they set a recommended daily value. Um, so there's actually some evidence that we probably want a lot more vitamin K than this. And K1, the form that's in plants, is very, very poorly absorbed into the body. So generally, if you were just going to eat a straight uh, head of broccoli, um, you would only absorb 5 to 10% of the vitamin K1 from that broccoli or a you know, bag of spinach or whatever it is, you can double the amount that you're absorbing if you also consume fats, put some salad dressing on your salad. I mean, that's not my favorite way to eat salad, but I realize I'm weird that way. 99.9% .9 of everybody else is doing that. Is, okay, I get it. Um, so, but still, now we're talking 10 to 20%. So vitamin K1 is actually very poorly absorbed. What is very absorbed, um, easily absorbed, is K2. So we absorb about 100% of the K2 that we're eating, we're getting K2 from animal foods and fermented foods. Um, so something like natto is the highest food source of vitamin K2, that's a fermented soy. Um, but all fermented foods will have some K2. And then uh, meat, especially liver, because our liver is the dominant area in our bodies for storage of vitamin K, because our liver is what makes all of the proteins that are used in coagulation um, that require vitamin K. We'll get to that. So K2 is nearly 100% absorbed. Um, and so we're getting it from food. The other place we're getting it, and this is super cool, is our gut bacteria. So our gut bacteria, if we have a healthy, you know, robust gut microbiome, 
are actually making uh, substantial amounts of K2. And this is what's really cool. So they're not actually converting K1 into K2. They're doing what's called de novo synthesis of K2. So they're literally building K2 for us. So even though 90% of the vitamin K in our in a typical diet is K1, if you look at the amount of vitamin K, the forms of vitamin K that's in our body, only about half of it is K1. The other half of it is K2. And that is because of absorption and because of the contribution from our gut bacteria. And it varies by tissue. So um, if you look at what's in our liver, 90% of the vitamin K that's in our liver is vitamin K2 and only 10% is vitamin K1. So what's really interesting about that is we've got these 13 different forms of K2, one different form of K1. Um, and we see that there's different forms in different tissues. So for example, um, menaquinone 7, MK7, is the, it's the dominant form in the liver. There's also uh, 8, 9, and 10 are also found in fairly large levels in the liver. So the liver likes these longer side chains. Whereas if you looked at brain tissue, for example, you're going to see predominantly um, MK4, menaquinone 4. So we don't understand how the biological activity of the different forms of vitamin K differ. That is really important to understand. So we know a lot about MK4 and MK7 and vitamin K1. These are the ones that we really understand. We don't, we don't really get the details of how other um, forms of K2 might vary in terms of their biological activity. We know that all vitamin K can kind of do the same job. So um, so it's kind of at, at some point when it's by the time it's in the tissue, we kind of consider all vitamin K to be the same. But given that we see different forms of K2 in different tissues, that really does imply that there's something important about that. Right now, in terms of uh, scientific discovery, we don't understand what that important thing is. So that's, I think, um, really helpful to understand. So what does vitamin K do? All these different forms basically do the same thing. So vitamin K's like top level function is that it is necessary for the activity of an enzyme called gamma glutamyl carboxylase, which what this enzyme does is it, um, so it, it supports the chemical reaction, right? It catalyzes the chemical reaction of carboxylation which is a post-translational modification of specifically the amino acid glutamic acid. So it, it is a post-translational modification, which means after our bodies make a protein, um, sometimes those proteins need to be modified in order to like turn that protein on or off or like make do the final steps in making the protein. So um, our, our cells will make a protein and then there's all of these different enzymes that can modify that protein so that like, aha, now the protein can do its job. So that's what this particular enzyme that vitamin K is necessary for does. It does a very important type of modification to proteins that have a uh, glutamic acid piece of it, right? So that's the amino acid glutamic acid. Um, and in that modification, it changes how those proteins that are getting modified, how that they can uh, bind to calcium. And so all of vitamin K's 
roles in the body, um, which are really diverse, are basically related to calcium metabolism through really being able to activate different proteins that are that require binding to calcium in order to do the thing that they do because vitamin K is necessary for this particular enzyme to function. So downstream of all that, so like that's the that's the top level where that's applied in human biochemistry is in three main areas. So one is as we already mentioned where vitamin K got its name is coagulation. That is the super schmancy word for blood clotting. Um, the other one is the regulation of a protein called GAS6, which is uh, a really important anti-aging protein. And then the other one, because calcium, this one's the, like the no surprise, um, the basically vitamin K controls where calcium goes in the body. And so it's very, very important for um, bone formation, uh, skeletal formation, bone mineralization, um, teeth health. Um, but also how calcium, um, vitamin K is really important for preventing, uh, calcium going to the wrong place as well. Right. So it's not just about shuttling calcium where it's supposed to be, but it's also stopping what's called calcification, which is the deposits of calcium going somewhere, uh, like a soft tissue, right? Like in your blood vessels, you don't want calcification there. So, um, let's go into a little bit more detail in each of those big things. So um, in terms of blood clotting, because this is um, one of the, one of the ways that, um, so vitamin K is really interesting here. So uh, the blood clotting is a really complex process. It um, is performed in what's called the coagulation cascade. So what this is, is a series of chemical reactions that each step requires the previous step to have happened. So each step basically makes the next step possible. And um, m- several of those steps require vitamin K. And so then uh, with each of these steps, um, you're basically creating the proteins that make up the clot. So you're, you're um, creating these like tangles of what are called um, fibrinogen and fibrin fibers that, that stick to the platelets and stick to say the, the side of the blood vessel and then make a a clot form or say the side of your broken skin and make a clot form. And so vitamin K is needed to activate, um, really four very important steps in that coagulation cascade. They are called clotting factors two, seven, nine, and 10. Um, cause they're basically numbered in terms of what order they come in the cascade. Um, but this is what's really cool is so a calcium is important in here. Uh, so, um, by basically turning on activating these clotting factors, it's enabling them to bind with calcium, which is really important for clot formation because calcium basically acts like an anchor. So, um, so calcium is really important for creating these long tangled chains, which form the actual clot, but it also helps to anchor the clot to the tissues where it's supposed to be. So without vitamin K, you couldn't clot and, um, you couldn't anchor that clot where it was supposed to be. So here's what's cool. Vitamin K is also necessary for these other proteins that are 
anticoagulants, right? So that they, they block clotting. So vitamin K is regulating clotting. It's necessary for clotting, but it also helps to prevent abnormal clots. So it's, it's part of, part of that equilibrium because you want to be able to, like, if you cut yourself, you want to be able to make a clot so that you don't bleed to death because that would not be a good day. Um, but at the same time, you, you want to clot minimally and you don't want to clot abnormally. So if you think of, a, there's a whole pile of different cardiovascular diseases that are caused by abnormal clotting. Uh, so that can be things like, like all heart disease, right? Strokes, pulmonary embolism, deep vein thrombosis. Um, those are caused by a blockage of a blood vessel, which can be related to this abnormal clotting. So vitamin K is involved in both sides. Right. I just, my brain exploded and I don't want to like gloss over this because, oh my gosh, this is just the beginning of what vitamin K does. As you were talking, I was like, okay, so what is it? There's the blood disease that the royal family got that starts with an H where you don't clot the Mm -hmm. hema something. Do you know what I'm talking about? Anyway. Matt's shouting it. He'll insert it here. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, those people just need some vitamin K, which is clearly not the case. So I'm like, no, you know, so, so that then, is but just before we jump away from my, my brain exploding, then you're like, well, but here's other things that blood clotting does. And you just listed things that are like crazy important, like your heart and stroke and things like mm-hmm. that. And I'm now my brain is exploding. Um, hemophilia. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Um, so, uh, okay. So yes. Um, ba- like abnormal blood clotting is very bad. Um, now something like a stroke is more complex than just uh, some platelets clumped together and started the coagulation cascade because it typically involves um, atherosclerotic plaques as well, which is the basically the, the formation of gunk on the inside of our blood vessels that um, start to block our blood vessels. And then when a piece of that gunk breaks off and travels to a smaller blood vessel, it, it blocks that blood vessel. But it turns out the vitamin K is involved in that too. So it's like still irrelevant there. Um, so vitamin K is important for supporting normal clotting and also for preventing abnormal clotting. Um, so, you know, this is something that I think, um, what's what's really interesting to me is if you have, um, a lot of like atherosclerotic lesions, um, and you're say you've, you've had, you've thrown clots, um, which, uh, would, you know, could be a pulmonary embolism, could be, uh, an ischemic stroke, could be a myocardial infarction. Um, deep vein thrombosis is another, you know, it's basically the difference between all those things is which vessel is, is blocked by a giant clot, which is probably partially also, uh, calcified atherosclerotic plaque. So, um, one of the treatments for that is to give blood thinners and blood thinners work by blocking vitamin K's actions in the coagulation cascade. But they're kind of this double-edged sword because if you're blocking vitamin K's activities, you're also blocking its ability to regulate coagulation through the production or activation of these proteins that are really important anticoagulants. 
I get it. I think okay. maybe not really, but I'm gonna I'm, let's okay. I'm hanging on. Uh, uh, summary: Vitamin K is necessary for clotting and prevents abnormal clotting. I think the thing that I don't maybe I'm just the only one, but I think the thing that really kind of I'm getting is that coagulation isn't just the thing that helps you scab. Like that's correct. That's the thing that I've always considered it to be, and now my expansion and understanding of that is more things like clot as it relates to a blood clot that leads to stroke, which Mm -hmm. now that I'm saying that out loud seems really obvious, but at the time it just, it wasn't something that I'd put together. But I'm I'm also really glad you picked that up because it's going to become super relevant in about 10 minutes. (laughs) So so I actually, I'm really glad that you, you focused on that. Um, so there's, um, I mentioned this protein called GAS6. It stands for like growth arrest specific gene six. Um, and vitamin K regulates that protein. Um, that protein is involved in a ton of different cellular functions, including things like controlling cell division and, um, cell death. Um, but is also how those, that cell can like interact with the immune system, for example, um, so gas six itself does a ton of things and requires vitamin K to turn on. And because of the collection of things that gas six does, scientists think that it's actually a key protein for both development and regulation of aging. And so through that, vitamin K has sort of been associated as an important anti-aging vitamin um, and actually if you look at um, those sort of like broad epidemiological studies that look at vitamin K intake and all-cause mortality, which is a really broad measure of health and longevity, um, the more vitamin K you eat, basically on average, the longer you live. And that may be at least in part, I mean, obviously like not getting cardiovascular disease is going to help extend your lifespan as well. But part of that might be through the regulation of GAS-6. And now for the part where vitamin D comes in, I need a drum roll. I need a drum roll for this. Um, So vitamin D and vitamin K work together in a really important way for, it's really breaks down to like calcium regulation, um, but it's a really central, it's really central to bone health, bone mineralization, skeletal health. So um, both of this is through the regulation of what calcium is doing. So a quick summary on what vitamin D does. Vitamin D both enhances the absorption of calcium from food and then also controls the amount of calcium in the blood. So if you're not getting enough calcium from your food, vitamin D will will basically activate the cells that break down your bone in order to draw calcium from your bone to do, like calcium does a bajillion things. It's a really important electrolyte. So it's important for muscle contraction and uh, you know, neuron signaling, right? Things that are really, really fundamental. And so we operate under a very controlled amount of calcium in our blood and it's vitamin D's job is to control the amount of calcium that's there, however it needs to. The other thing that vitamin D does is it promotes the production of a whole pile of proteins that need vitamin K in order to function. And so that's where there's this really important synergistic action between vitamin D and vitamin K. 
Um, so where K, vitamin K really takes over in this calcium metabolism piece is vitamin D makes sure there's enough of it around in the blood and then vitamin K controls where it goes. So it does this in a couple of different ways. One is like actually in bones and teeth, vitamin K is activating through this gamma carboxylation um, as activating a protein called osteocalcin that is the protein that basically promotes the accumulation of calcium. Um, so it's it's uh, a you know com very complex process that really we don't need to get into in order to understand it. But without osteocalcin, you would not have the formation of calcium hydroxyapatite crystals, which are the mineral foundation for bones and teeth. Um, and it requires vitamin K to activate. But vitamin K also activates um, something called, well, it's, the acronym is MGP. It's matrix gamma carboxylated glutamate protein, which I shall say only that one time um, was, and I'm call it. I'm pretty impressed you did it that one time. <laughs> so we'll only call it MGP from, from now on. Um, so this particular protein um, works on controlling where calcium goes from the other side by preventing it from accumulating in soft tissues, right? So we want calcium to go where things are hard, like bones and not go where things are soft like blood vessels. So it's MGP that requires vitamin K to activate that is making sure you don't get calcium depositing in your kidneys, for example, making calcium oxalate kidney stones um, or calcifying your blood vessels, uh, which is part of the um, development of atherosclerotic plaques, which can eventually, again, sort of lead to all of these cardiovascular diseases. So vitamin K is is controlling where calcium goes both in saying hey yo bone we need your we need we need the calcium over here in the bone and then no don't don't go over here this is a blood vessel bad calcium bad so vitamin k is controlling both of those sides and then it's also um there's this whole other like collection of um related proteins that um are either proteins in the bone that are are controlling something to do with bone mineralization or their proteins in the rest of the body that are doing something um, related to uh, coagulation, anticoagulation, um, preventing calcification. So there's the, its dominant roles are in um, both osteocalcin and MGP, but there's it is more complex than that. There's a ton of other pieces. And so because of this sort of like cooperative action between vitamin D and vitamin K in terms of regulating calcium, we see, like, if you just think about that, that piece of, um, wanting to not have calcium deposits in blood vessels because they help to form, uh, uh, abnormal clotting, um, that's where we start to see that there's this actually really important, um, an important action in terms of cardiovascular health where vitamin D and vitamin K are basically working together. So this has been shown in a variety of, of studies, definitely more research needed here, but really interestingly, they've basically shown that if you um, give blood thinners to say a rat, um, that will cause vitamin K deficiency because functional vitamin K deficiency, because it's blocking Vitamin, T, vitamin D. So this is a, a they give a warfarin, which is a really standard 
blood thinner that's often given to like stroke, post-stroke patients. Um, and uh, that causes a functional vitamin D deficiency, which then causes calcification of the arteries, which is accelerated when vitamin D is very high. So it's these types of studies that really highlight uh, why you you don't want to have vitamin D and low vitamin K. Like that's that's a really bad situation. Um, there have been a, a bunch of studies also in humans where they've done things like given vitamin D and vitamin K together, and they've shown that together they help to uh, regulate blood pressure. They help to improve um, uh, like the elasticity of arteries, um, and they've also shown that. Um, that high vitamin D in the absence of vitamin K can sort of drive this calcification. So that's a impact of what's called vitamin D toxicity. Um, but it's um, something that can be potentially mitigated by increasing vitamin K. There's a couple of other ways that vitamin D and vitamin K may work together. They're, it's just really emerging evidence right now. Again, more science needed, but it looks like they might work together to help regulate glucose metabolism. So there's some some science showing that they may improve insulin sensitivity um, through a variety of different actions together where they're actually impacting like the pancreatic beta cell function. Um, and there's also some emerging evidence that they're working together as um, immune regulators in some ways, um, or at least regulating the oxidative stress on the body. Um, so we we know that both vitamin D and vitamin K do interact with the immune system, and it, it appears that their joint action is uh, sort of an overall anti-inflammatory reduced oxidative stress action. Again, more science needed. So that's everything that vitamin K does. So you kind of go like, wow, if you if you think about it as simplistically as turning, uh, helping to, to turn on proteins that are really important for regulating what calcium is doing in the body, um, then then you kind of go, oh yeah, this is kind of important for 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 all the things. So one of the things I started with was you know, if you just look at the adequate intake level, it looks like it's really easy to get enough vitamin K. It turns out that because uh, K1 is not as easily absorbed um, and uh, there may be situations where our needs for vitamin K are much, much higher than that adequate intake level, that vitamin K insufficiency prevalence might actually be quite high. But what's really interesting is this hasn't really been well studied. So there have been some studies that have gone like, oh, yeah, it's like 8 to maybe 31% of people have vitamin K deficiency, um, especially in older adults. But there was um, a study that was just published last year that basically made the case for you cannot look at dietary intake because of all of the other factors, right? You can't really easily measure how much vitamin K2 someone's gut microbiome is making for them. Um, and you can't, you know, you can't say that, you know, if only 10% or 5% of the vitamin K someone's consuming is actually being absorbed, like that's not factored into the adequate intake level. And so even if on the surface it looks like most Americans are getting enough vitamin K, if you actually do the thing of measuring a functional vitamin K, how do you do that? 
So do, do you remember the, the, the MGP protein that's really important for making sure that vitamin K doesn't uh, allow calcium or the vitamin K activates MGP to make sure that calcium doesn't deposit in blood vessels? Yeah, there was, yes. yeah. So, <laughs> so MGP is probably the best way to measure vitamin K because you can basically measure how much MGP is in the blood that's not been turned on by vitamin K. So it's not gamma carboxylated, it's uncarboxylated. That's so it's, is that something that you've seen your functional medicine doctor test as you test vitamin D stuff? Is- I don't believe that that has been on any of my blood work, but I would have to go through the pages and pages and pages of, of results and, and have a look. Um, so uh, this is sort of a, a new way of looking at it. And this study looked at, um, so we're looking at 60 to 80 year olds um, and they were in like a retirement community um, and they measured their levels of uncarboxylated MGP. So the higher the uncarboxylated MGP, the lower vitamin K is. So it's like an inverse marker of vitamin K status. Um, And they measured it in 452 participants and found that 97% of them had high levels of uncarboxylated MGP, which indicates low vitamin K. Um, they also looked at, um, like some other markers of like, they looked at coronary artery calcium. Then what they did was they gave them all vitamin K supplementations and they showed that their uncarboxylated MGP, um, was able to go down. And, um, and so that was, um, that's like the first study to really look at, um, in adults, functional vitamin K insufficiency. And it really indicates like if you go, if you just look at someone's dietary intake and you think that maybe at most 30% of people are not getting enough, and then you do a measurement, a functional measurement, and you're like, actually, maybe it's almost everybody. <laughs> like that's really important information. And so we're really at this point where we're still learning about functional vitamin K insufficiency and what the implications are and how that relates to cardiovascular disease. Um, but, uh, what's also interesting is the other place where vitamin K levels are monitored is in newborns. Um, so you might remember Stacy that one of the very first things they do for a newborn is give them an injection of vitamin K and that's to prevent, um, these uh, hemorrhages from happening. So it allows them to clot normally. And so there have been studies that have looked at the prevalence of vitamin K deficiency in newborns. Um, And one of the things that we've committed to is highlighting racial disparity data. At this point, there do not appear to be racial disparities in vitamin K levels, but that's only been tested in newborns because it's such a new thing to really look at in a functional way in adults. I do remember that being um, one of the things that mm-hmm. like a, a heel prick for all the boys. Um, it's, I guess, um, difficult for me to wrap my brain around why do we think we're so deficient? I mean, we know why we're deficient in so many of the different nutrients that we've talked about on the show from you know, our quality of food to the soil to just lifestyle in general. Do you think it's because of kind of traditional foods being ones that we don't 
really consume as much? Or do you think it's, um, there's something more specific that um, is leading to such widespread apparent deficiency? Yeah, I mean, at this point, I need to hypothesize um, because there's no um, there's no good explanation for this prevalence of insufficient vitamin K in the scientific literature. It's just like, whoa, we really need to look at you know how we're setting the the adequate intake level is is pretty much the the summary of this. It's like, yikes, this is not cool. It is. I, I think you you're definitely onto something with the you know, traditional foods that are highest sources of the absorbable form of vitamin K, K2, are fermented foods, which, you know, used to be a much bigger part of the average diet than they are now, as well as organ meats. Like there's not a ton of K2 in muscle meat. Um, liver is really our, our best source. And so, you know, when I was a kid, um, my mom made us eat liver like once a week. Um, and that's not, you know, even when I was a kid, that was already weird. Like it was more like my mom's generation that had, you know, organ meat as a more regular thing when they were kids. Like it, that, that, that's been a number of decades since, uh, organ meat was sort of a normal part of the average, uh, diet in Western countries. And so I think it's probably that combination along with, you know, if you look at, the average American diet is a terrible diet for the gut microbiome. It is full of refined carbohydrates, not enough fiber. The fats are the wrong amounts of fats and the wrong kinds of fats, uh, not enough phytochemicals. Um, our gut microbiome is also sensitive to the nutrient density of our diet. So if you're eating a nutrient deficient diet, typically the gut microbiome suffers. Um, and, uh, and even the types of proteins, right? Like fish protein is the best protein for the gut microbiome. And we're eating less fish than we have in a very, very long time on average. So all basically, if you're not getting it from the diet, and then you're also not supporting the healthy gut microbiome that can make up that shortfall. And so I think it's that like, it, it's the sum total of all of the ways that the sort of modern food system has hurt us um, is being reflected in vitamin K status. Doesn't surprise me, I guess, but not so great. Um, and I think also, you know, what is fascinating, not just about vitamin K, but kind of as you talk about its relevance and importance to um, vitamin D, for example, and calcium, it is that story that the original question alluded to, which is that, mm -hmm. you know, food sources in general are going to be the best way to obtain those nutrients. But from a realistic perspective, like we can't control unless you are, you know, on your own um, compound homestead kind of situation, right? Like food quality and um, all of that kind of stuff is by nature just changed from modernism, right? Like yeah. just the, the food, the revolution of technology and all of these things have just really impacted everything about our lives that while we talk about negatively from an ancestral lifestyle perspective, I think we all enjoy electricity and our smartphones, mm -hmm. you know, but I am particularly fond of indoor plumbing. Right. And I'm sure because you live in Georgia in the summertime, I also live in, you know, Virginia, 
which is very humid in the summertime as well. Like electricity, I'm not going to complain about that. But it does mean that there are repercussions to our environment that affect things. And I, I just think like overall, when we talk about these sort of things, especially today, because of how much it's touching all these different areas, it's kind of like, you know, ringing true to me that you just can't pluck like one thing out of, you know, a big bucket and be like, okay, vitamin D, for example, we're just going to give you a vitamin D supplement and everything will be okay. Because here's all these mechanisms that we're learning and talking about that are even kind of new for the both of us, right? Like I know you did a ton of research going and and learned yourself a bunch about this um, as you were doing that because this is- Wait, shh, shh. That's that's the oh that's the type of insight only our Patreon family gets. Oh, okay. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm just I it's fascinating to me how um it all comes about. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. and we learn how it works together and really just hones in the message repeatedly to me that we really need to be thinking as much as we can about how to continue to inject that nutrient deficiency and to have that nutrivore mindset about all of the things that we're approaching because it, it it is not in a vacuum. It is not just like one thing. And we see an example of this with, you know, vitamin D I'm going back to, we did the show on that, right? But here we are, like, if that's the only thing you're doing, how it could have repercussions on these yeah. other things, you know? I think it also highlights um, how hard it is to really meet the body's nutritional needs in the current environment. Um, so, you know, it's, you know, it's, even if you look at, okay, like I'm, I'm going to eat more liver to get K2. I'm going to eat some natto. Like you can't just get natto at any old store. It's not an easy thing to find. Um, and if you are, overtly sensitive to soy, that's not going to be something on your list anyways. Um, and so it's, it shows how much effort needs to go into, um, a sort of nutrivore mindset in order to really truly meet all of our nutritional needs. Um, and it, it's, you know, that's something where, you know, we're going to go back to like vote with our dollar type is, is really the, the response that we have, um, because we don't really have another option other than to like, we can go, well, we can call, we can call our stores and say, Hey, do you have this in stock? Uh, can you get it in for me? And if they have enough people say, Hey, we really want you to always carry liver. Maybe the store will start always carrying liver, but it really sort of takes this like grassroots movement in order to be able to show, companies that there really is a demand for these nutrient-dense foods that can fill in this nutritional gap. Agreed. I know I mentioned at the top of the show, I started taking K2 really, I think, early on into quarantine, maybe like January, February. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was because I was on just thrive site poking around using our (laughs) discount code and had remembered um specifically liz wolf's intro to kind of k2 and um as we mentioned i have not been eating as much of um like lard or butter and i don't eat that many eggs i just i don't 
I don't know. They're not like my favorite food. I don't think I respond like super favorably to them. So it's not like I have eggs every day. And um, those are the foods that I remembered she said K2 were in. And so I'm like, oh, this seems like a good life choice right now. (laughs) Um, But that was kind of the extent of my understanding. So I think... um, I, I I am loving learning why it's important, but also realizing um, that it's it's not, again, in a vacuum, like, I need to be more testing my vitamin D. I know you're going to test, test mm-hmm. me, but I, I don't test it as um, regularly as you do. Um, and so now I'm like, okay, now that I've been doing this, all these vitamins and quarantine, it's a good time to go back and check that, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah, for sure. What's really interesting about vitamin K is um, most people don't have overt symptoms of deficiency. So if you're, there's a, there's a difference between deficiency and insufficiency. And I, I really try to use the correct term for depending on what I'm talking about. Um, But it's really easy to kind of like mix up those two words. So deficiency means your levels are so low that you're showing symptoms. So if you were vitamin K deficient, you would, the most likely symptoms would be related to clotting. So you might get frequent nosebleeds, for example, or have bleeding gums, or um, you might have really heavy periods, for example. Like those would all be signs of vitamin K deficiency. You might bruise really easily. Um, But vitamin K insufficiency is, um, so the levels are not adequate, right? They're not high enough, but they're not low enough to cause these symptoms that would be like a really big red flag. And that's much more insidious because the problems with that are much, are seen over a really long time scale. So taking a vitamin K supplement is not the type of supplement where like if you're vitamin D insufficient and you start taking vitamin D, you notice within a couple of months, like, oh my gosh, I have so much more energy. My mood's so much better, right? There's so many um, really palpable things that you can feel that, aha, my vitamin, my vitamin D is coming up. Vitamin K is not really like that. It's not the type of supplement where you take and you go like, oh my gosh, uh, my, my, I'm thinking so much more clearly, right? I've got all this energy, my headaches are gone because it's, um, what it's really doing is it is right. It's the main, uh, like long-term issues that low levels of vitamin K are associated with, like vitamin K insufficiency rather than deficiency, are osteoporosis and cardiovascular disease, right? And that's a direct result of vitamin K's roles in calcium, right? It's You want vitamin K to be high enough to make sure that the, the calcium is going into the bones where it's supposed to and not going into blood vessels where it can, you know, lead to this formation of atherosclerotic plaques and uh, dysfunctional clotting. And so there's, um, because those diseases, unless you are, you know, going and getting, you know, imaging done of your arteries on a regular basis, which you might be if you uh, are recovering from cardiovascular disease, but most people are not getting that done. You don't really necessarily have a measure for what's happening. And you're not necessarily going to feel that you're blood vessels have less calcification. That's not something that's going to necessarily translate to a uh, sort of day-to-day improvement in how you feel. Um, But what it is doing is preventing um, or at least reducing the risk of these like long-term problems. 
so with supplementation, there's actually a growing body of evidence basically saying that we want to optimize both vitamin D and vitamin K together. Um, there's really not enough science showing how much vitamin K to take relative to vitamin D. Um, so studies have basically shown that if you're taking less than about 800 IU per day of vitamin D, that that level, you probably don't need to take additional vitamin K. Um, at least when they're looking at these like big measurements of like artery calcification in cardiovascular disease. So at least from those types of studies, they've sort of created this like dividing line, 800 IU per day or lower is considered a low dose of vitamin D, in which case healthy diet, a healthy gut microbiome is going to be sufficient. Over 800 IU per day, more scientists are basically saying like vitamin D should actually be packaged with vitamin K um, if, if we're taking more than 800 IU per day. Um, and there's this call for more big studies to sort of look at how higher dose vitamin D, especially over the long term, if you're somebody who, like me, who I, I take 500 IU, not 500, 5,000 IU of vitamin D per day, that's what my body needs to keep my levels of vitamin D uh, in the functional zone. And um, that's also, I want to say, that doesn't mean that uh, I recommend anyone go out and take that much. Vitamin D supplementation needs to be individualized. So it's really important to measure your vitamin D. And if it's insufficient, supplement and retest and make sure that you're taking enough to get your vitamin D high enough and not too much that your vitamin D is going too high. Um, with vitamin K, it's really interesting though. There is no upper limit. There's no actual evidence of a toxic level of vitamin K. Um, which is very different. You know, we talked on the podcast last week about vitamin A toxicity and how vitamin A and vitamin D sort of compete for the same receptors. And that if you're taking a lot of vitamin A and vitamin D that increases the need for vitamin K, this is where that is. This is, this is that, that information right here. Um, because the higher the vitamin D is, the more we need vitamin K to help basically work in concert with vitamin D to control calcium. And so if we're taking a large amount of vitamin D in order to get our levels into the normal range, that is increasing our need for vitamin K. And what we don't really know is how much vitamin K, right? That What we really know is that the adequate intake level needs to be reevaluated. It's probably not actually adequate, um, but we don't really know how much to take. But we can say there doesn't seem to be any risks for taking large amounts of vitamin K. Um, so if you wanted to eat an entire bowl of natto, for example, which has uh, approximately ginormous amounts of vitamin K2, mostly MK7, um, then uh, that's a safe thing to do. So that's kind of cool in the sense that it's another way that vitamin K is not acting like a typical fat-soluble vitamin. So the last, the last thing is like why why would we want to take K27? Why do we want this seven repeats of this carbon, you know, five carbon little thing on the side chain of the menaquinone? Why, why is seven the magic number? Um, and it really boils down to, we know a couple of things. So we know that um, seven is the dominant 
uh, form of K2 that's produced by our gut bacteria. They're, they're producing all from MK2 all the way to MK14, um, but the, the most that we're seeing is MK7, the second most is MK4. We know that in the liver, which is the organ that is making all these clotting factors that are part of the coagulation cascade that's relying on vitamin K, we know that um, MK7 is the most dominant form. Um, we know that the body can convert MK7 into MK4. So if we take MK7, um, we are still able to make some other forms. And um, the studies that have actually looked at MK7 as a supplement have shown that it's one of the best absorbed uh, forms of vitamin K. And then it has a really long half-life, which leads to very stable levels in our body. So for example, vitamin K1 um, has a very short half-life. Um, so you can actually accumulate, taking the same amount of K1 versus MK7, you can actually accumulate about like eight times higher levels by taking um, menaquinone 7, vitamin K2 7, um, because of this longer half-life. It helps us stabilize the levels much more. Um, and we know that MK7 does all the important things that vitamin K that we want vitamin K2 to be able to do. Um, so that's another really important thing. And it's also been the best studied. So there have been long-term studies looking at um, three years of supplementation. So three years is ample time for any issues to crop up. And um, studies have shown that supplementation with MK7 do the things that you would hope taking a vitamin K2 supplement would do, like improving the elasticity of our arteries that's been measured in humans taking um, MK7 over three years, um, like improving bone mineral density. So the, the two major things that, um, that we want vitamin K2 to do, right, improve our vascular health and improve our bone health, we see that MK7 can do that. So that's one of the reasons why, one of the many reasons why it's so cool that the Just Thrive K2 is this best, basically it's the best studied form of vitamin K that checks all of those boxes, highly absorbable, long half-life, and has been shown in long-term supplementation studies to have the functional properties that you would expect vitamin K to have based on its roles in our biology. Um, and so that's the form that's in Just Thrive. They package it with magnesium and zinc to help actually increase absorption. So you go from close to 100% to 100%. Um, and like all of Just Thrive's things, it's no GMO, no soy, no dairy, no sugar, no salt, no corn, no tree nuts, no gluten. It's um, completely, you know, friendly for us. It's and it's, you know, like everything they make is top quality. Uh, I just wasn't sure what to say. I thought maybe there would be like a mic drop noise there. Um, yeah, I have been taking it and um, I'm happy to hear you say that it wouldn't be something that I would necessarily like feel right away, um, but that could be um, helpful in long-term, for example, osteoporosis. Um, this is Stacy talking, not Sarah and not science, but I have 
arthritis that runs in my family on both sides. And so I do think that like bone health in general is something that I try to prioritize. And Mm -hmm. it sounds like this is not going to be um, a bad thing towards that um, as it relates to, you know, calcium and and all that kind of stuff. So um, I understand that arthritis is an inflammatory um, autoimmune response, but I also just think that prioritizing um, like collagen, bone broth, bone health is something I try to really do to hopefully keep that at bay for as long as I can, despite the fact that, um, you know, I had honestly like uh, joint issues in my 20s before I changed my diet and lifestyle. So if it is something you want to check out, you can go to justthrivehealth.com slash the whole view and get 15% off with code the whole view. That code is good for subscriptions as well. So you can kind of double up your savings. This is what I do. Um, you can use the code for your subscription so that it ended up being like I bought two and got one free. Um, was essentially how that deal worked wow. out in the end. It's super generous um, of them to allow that to happen. So um, thank you to our sponsor, Just Thrive, who we use and love mm-hmm. for all the reasons you've pointed out. And thank you listeners for listening to Sarah's deep dive into the <laughs> science. If you have follow-up questions or, you know, are kind of reeling from it all, we Welcome your feedback on social media, and um, you can always submit questions via the contact form on our blog, but we'll also dive a little bit more into it on our follow-up Patreon, not episode. No. <laughs> our Bonus month, audio. Our monthly, our monthly audio release, um, where you might hear a little bit more from her there. So we hope to hear you, see you around, whatever that phrase is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that phrase. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week. Do you love the Whole View podcast? We'd love for you to leave us a review wherever you listen and share a podcast with your friends and family. And did you know that you can now get exclusive behind the scenes content on Patreon for less than the price of an almond milk matcha a month? Your Patreon membership supports us and gets you access to a monthly bonus But not for kids' ears, because our bonus content is explicit. You can find us as The Whole View on Patreon for our real, unfiltered thoughts on this week's episode. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.